Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That biblical, biblical theology, theology study the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline, and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication, a work of art, from Genesis to Revelation, from God's creation, to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens, sturdy and fixed. Romans 11:36. Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what He promises, and the so clever we behold his endeavors unfold The greatest, greatest story, story ever, ever told. told The Christian life is a difficult odyssey The faithful are a statistical anomaly The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically That's why we need that biblical theology Lord God, deliver us from apostasy The human heart is given to idolatry The situation is critical, we gotta see The importance of biblical theology yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you, Lord he gave us the word providing us correction and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, folks. That is what we do here at Theology Matters with the Palouse. We want to be biblical, and we want to do correct theology, and so we want to do biblical theology, of course. We will engage in a philosophical theology in that as well, 
nothing uh, against that. Sometimes you have to uh, incorporate uh, philosophy in order to do good biblical theology. In fact, a, a good percentage of the time. So anyway, folks, glad you are able to join us tonight. Boy, we have a show for you. Let's see, a few things have happened since last time I've been on this show. It's been a few weeks now. Um, Folks, it has been an incredibly amazing, uh, busy summer. We have just been off the charts in some of the things we've been able to do. Uh, Many of you guys know that uh, we are missionaries with a group called Ratio Christi, Latin for Reasons for Christ. It is an apologetics ministry that focuses on worldview, evangelism, apologetics. Uh, we go to the colleges, the universities, and just like you have your, you know, like your BCM Baptist Collegiate Ministries and your uh, Campus Crusade for Christes, uh, for Christ, I should say. Um, great ministries. They need it on campus. We need more of them. Uh, Ratio Christi is there, though, with a particular focus. Just like these other ministries, they're there to help do devotions, prayer life, these type of things, Um, social events, get to know each other, get connected. Those are great things. But with Ratio Christi, it's really a focus on defending the faith, apologetics. And uh, though we certainly have a good social atmosphere, and though we do uh, definitely encourage a good devotional life and me, probably maybe even more than some, uh, really stress the importance of being uh, connected to a local church and being part of a local church. Uh, but but Ratio Christie's, our main focus is apologetics. And we want to come alongside other ministries in, in the, on the university and in the campus and work with them. Unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, I don't even know how you say it, um, competition you should you could say uh with other campus ministries and uh they don't particularly a lot of times want to work with other ministries because uh they're scared you may take their students or uh whatever whatever the case may be uh the good thing about ratio christie though is we do have a no competition Policy. We're not trying to come alongside and replace other ministries. We want to come alongside with other ministries and help them in this area of apologetics. So Ratio Christi really is laser-focused. Say that all to say, uh, this summer has been very busy for us as missionaries. Um, I have been teaching down at the Weddington United Methodist Church in uh, the Matthew Weddington area. Uh, been teaching their uh, apologetics, or I'm sorry, their Sunday school class. Um, it's kind of a senior adult class, maybe 20, 25 people. Um, I mean, I can't speak for the whole church. I don't know where they are at theologically. Uh, United Methodists can be kind of a scary group, uh, but they are, um, there's a resurgence towards conservatism. Uh, in Africa, in in some of the other uh, Methodist uh, churches outside of America, why America seems to be going deeper and deeper in liberal garbage, uh, the African Methodist uh, church seems to be 
really uh, shining brightly and uh, turning it around. So my prayer is uh, kind of like how the SBC was in the 60s and 70s uh, and even in, in the 80s. Uh, hopefully we will get uh, we'll get another Al Mohler to come in there, clean house, and uh, God will will turn that denomination around. But I've been up there for the last so several weeks now, and I'll be there through August, uh, teaching on uh, basically God and science. Uh, we're going through the video Expelled right now, which is a phenomenal documentary. I recommend everybody watch that. That was with uh, Ben Stein. And it was put out, uh, I think, 2007. But it's very pertinent for today. Yeah, you just you see the um, prejudice and the abuse uh, against a lot of the professors that don't, um, you know, hold to Darwinism, etc. So, anyway, been up there teaching on apologetics, etc. We'll be there through August. Um, have had a wonderful time at my good friend Scott Davis's church in Rock Hill at uh, Northside Baptist. He's had us come in for the, for the last three weeks and do an apologetic series. Uh, the first one we did was what is Christian apologetics, just kind of speaking as to, you know, what is apologetics? Um, why does the church need it? Uh, this, you know, to lay audience, you know, people that have you know, probably been to church for a long time, but, um, you know, to be honest, folks, a lot of Christians don't have exposure to apologetics. And uh, so I'm very thankful for Scott and uh, Pastor Scott and allowing us to come in and, and uh, do a series. Uh, so we, we did What is Apologetics. The second week we did God and Science, where uh, I actually gave that talk that I've gave on this show before. If you go back oh, maybe a month, two months, uh, you can find that talk in the full format, about an hour and a half talk. Uh, where we play the the video clips, etc. So you guys can hear that. Um, it, was, it was received wonderfully, and uh, the people seemed to enjoy it, and they seemed to really like seeing that there is a logical, rational basis to the faith. You know, folks, what I see is a lot of times, you know, Christians don't know about apologetics. It's just how it is. It just it's not something that pastors are teaching on. It's just not. But what I've noticed is when Christians get exposure to it, and when Christians see that there is such a thing as Christian apologetics, they love it, and they want more of it, and they want to learn it, and they want to know it. And it emboldens them to go out and share the faith, where before they wouldn't. They didn't want to share the faith, because you know, if you ask most people why, they'll say because they're, you know, they're scared they're going to get asked questions. They don't know how to answer. And so it's easier to just close the drapes and hide under the bed when the Jehovah's Witnesses come over. Well, we don't want to do that. You know, we, we want to be able to engage people. Apologetics gives people the ability to do that. Kind of maybe a crude analogy. But I remember as a kid being picked on a little bit in school. And so my dad's solution to that was to sign me and my little brother up for Taekwondo. And uh, we were in there for several months, probably two or three years maybe, and uh, got to be pretty good. Both of us were pretty good. You can tell that by seeing me now, but there was a time uh, when we were pretty good and uh, were pretty tough for little kids. And 
I remember the uh, confidence that I had. Before, I was timid. I was shy. I wouldn't look other kids in the face. You know, worried you're going to get beat up. Take uh, take uh, karate for a little bit. Learn how to fight. Learn how to defend yourself. Suddenly, you're not scared anymore. Suddenly, you're willing to look people in the eye. Suddenly, you have confidence. On well, a similar analogy, friends, before God saved me, it sounds weird, but see, I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor. I knew what to believe. I knew what to be what to believe. Okay. So people would have said, uh, are you a Christian? I would have said, well, you know, no, I know Jesus is the only way. I know the Bible's true, but I'm, you know, I'm just not living like that now. I'm backsliding, etc. Um, but I remember being at work, and I remember, uh, you know, the issue, you know, you're at work, people want the pastime, so of course you're going to talk religion and politics. And they just seem to go together. And so I remember having some discussion and um, uh, one of the guys that I worked with uh, at the time I was in Oregon and uh, if you're familiar at all with Oregon it's an awful lot of uh, atheists and agnostics out there so I'm working with a guy that's an atheist and um, you know he's asking me so what do you believe about God what do you believe about the Bible and the afterlife and are you religious and well, yeah, you know, I believe that the Bible is the Word of God, and I believe that God exists. Uh, but you know, obviously, um, you know, you you can tell by my cussing and my lifestyle. Basically, I was not living like that. And uh, you know, so he would ask me tough questions and challenge me, and I I didn't know how to respond. I didn't answer these questions. Uh, and so. Around September 11th, I remember that happened. That's when God started drawing me to himself. I started getting more interested in reading the Bible and being in church, etc. But then I saw that debate. I've talked about that on the show before with Gary Habermas and Anthony Flew. God used that debate to save my life. And I gave my life to Christ that night. And uh, it was just incredible. And from then on, I've been just so interested in learning how to defend the faith. And so what I saw was when that happened and when I actually saw there were reasons to believe and some good answers to these questions, I would go to work and I could not wait to get into discussions with these people that didn't believe God existed because I had a lot of these same questions and I had some of these same objections. And to see that there were real answers to it was mind-blowing. So in a similar way, what I've seen when we, we went to, to my friend Pastor Scott's church, these guys were coming up after the first and second week saying, hey, we're, we're sharing a faith. We're, you know, I've got a family member coming over. What do I say to this person? I uh, had one of our friends last night say, hey, my dad doesn't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. What are, what are some scriptures? What are some things we can use to... Uh, talk with them and share the gospel. So the apologetics really does embolden the, uh, people to be able to, to, to have these conversations. They're not scared anymore because what happens is when you start getting into apologetics, you see the Christian faith really is true. It's not just a nice idea. It's not just your parents' faith. It really is true. And so it's just been really exciting this summer to, 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 to see how that's 
uh, been happening and just to see how God is using Ratio Christi. Uh, we also have started a Ratio Christi High School prep, and uh, this is basically Ratio Christi, but for high schoolers. And we started this about uh, three weeks ago. Uh, good friend Daniel Wells, who's pastor at Hill City Presbyterian Church out here in Rock Hill. Uh, I've had him on the show once before, just kind of interviewed him about his life and his testimony and that. Um, but several people from his church have uh, high schoolers, and we knew a few other people that had high schoolers, and we wanted to start this high school prep where we start an eight-week series um, teaching on how to defend the faith. Uh, We're going through a great series called the Thinking Series from Apologetics Canada, and looking at these questions such as, does God exist? Are miracles possible? Uh, if God, why evil? Right? Some of these basic questions. And the point is to be able to answer some of these questions and point to resources so that when they get to college, they are somewhat, of a, somewhat inoculated. See, a lot of, a lot of Christians, they, they grow up, they're in a homeschool environment, they're at church every week, they're Bible study, they're... Sunday school, youth group, etc., which is great. Definitely need that. Um, but at times, they're not exposed to some of these bigger ideas, so things like the existence of God, uh, you know, the objections from the existence of God, etc. And so it's good to be able to expose them to some of these things, um, and that way, when they get to college, they're not just, you know, completely shocked at, at some of the stuff that they're hearing. So we've got about 15 to 20 kids coming. We've uh, done about three weeks so far, right in the middle of God and science. So we'll be continuing that Tuesday. So that's been another uh, awesome venture that uh, God has allowed us to do. Uh, We're still doing the prison ministry. And uh, actually went up there with my good friend Ross Hickling uh, on Monday, who's a Ratio Christie, one of the directors. And uh, Ross is a is a great guy. He drove down almost three hours to come to the prison and do some ministry with these men. And uh, it is the interesting thing about Scott is he was uh, part of the SWAT team and a U.S. marshal at one time. And so he's you know used to working with guys in the prison and normally you know putting people in the prison. Uh, but it's it's just neat to see his his love for the people. He's retired now, uh, and yet he's you know still still uh, coming and teaching and uh, wanting to lead people to the Lord. So that's been a been a wonderful thing that we've been able to be involved in uh, as well. So we've been busy. <laughs> we've been very very busy this summer, and still got stuff. Coming up, um, we have an apologetics conference uh, starting in July, I believe it's the 11th through the 15th or so. Uh, For those interested in the Charlotte area, if you have high schoolers, uh, it'll be, it'll be a good, it'll be a good, um, if I can pull up the exact dates here, I'll be helping lead a, a discussion every week or every day there through the week. Um, so that will be that will be good. So if you guys have schoolers, 
see if I can pull this up, folks. Let's see. Let me do this. If you guys have high schoolers, you could take your kids there and uh, kind of get them some training through the summer. You know, it's a perfect time. It's summer. Not a lot going on. Why not? Uh, why not take your kids out there? Let them get some training. Let them do some uh, some thinking and and go through some of these uh, through some of these things that will help equip them and strengthen their faith. And again, uh, it'll make them stronger for when they want to go to uh, when they decide to share their faith with their friends. Let's see if I got the uh, details. Yes. Okay, so uh, this is a youth apologetics conference. It's from ages 13 to 19 years old. It's going to take uh, take place in Charlotte every summer. Some of the best apologists, speakers in the country for biblical worldview training, times of worship, and uh, fun events and stuff. Well, let's see. Speaking this year is going to be Dr. Frank Turek, Cross-Examine Ministries. Uh, Richard Howe, who's a philosophy professor at Southern Evangelical Seminary, Dr. Michael Brown. Uh, you guys probably heard him on The Line of Fire. And uh, well-known, well-known apologist has done a, a lot of stuff on the same-sex uh, marriage and homosexuality, as well as Jewish apologetics. One of the finest uh, scholars there is on Jewish apologetics. I think the man's got like two PhDs in language. It was just a brilliant guy. So this is going to take place on the campus of Charlotte Christian School, and that is uh, 7301 Sardis Road in Charlotte. It will be Monday, July 11th through Friday, July 15th, 8.30 to 2.30. So it's going to be a great time. I would really, you know, if you guys uh, want more information, uh, go to our Facebook page, Theology Matters with the Palouse shoot us a message, and uh, we'll put this up on our Facebook page. Actually, I can do that now. And, um, you know, that way you guys can can uh, kind of be aware of some of the events. Um, the National Apologetics Conference uh, is coming again in October. It's going to be at the Big Calvary Church in Charlotte. Folks, this is, is the biggest uh, apologetics conference in the nation. Uh, and so really suggest if you can make it come on out uh this year is the uh, headliner is going to be lee strobel and from my understanding he's writing a new book called the case for miracles uh, if you guys are familiar with lee strobel you you're probably somewhat familiar with his um case for series so case for faith case for christ uh etc Excellent series of books, Case for the Real Jesus, Case for Faith, uh, Case for the Creator. Uh, It's it's just a phenomenal series. Uh, Lee Strobel goes around and interviews all the uh, kind of the who's who uh, in the apologetics world. So when he's doing the Case for the Creator, he's talking to Dr. William Lane Craig about, you know, like fine-tuning, Big Bang Cosmology. Uh, when it comes to biology and chemistry, he's talking to Mike Behe and uh, Jonathan Wells, and just the you know the top guys. Uh, if you have high school students or even junior high students, they have the Case for Faith uh, series for younger 
younger students as well. So highly recommend some of those things. So um, be looking out for that. A lot of a lot of great things going on this summer. I was going to going to take a little bit of time uh, today to talk about. Uh, was wanting to talk a little bit about a question I get all the time when I'm speaking at churches and conferences, etc. Uh, about regarding the age of the earth, young earth creation versus old earth creation. I'll probably do that a little more in depth at another time, uh, but maybe just take a few minutes here before our guest comes on. And uh, by the way, I don't think I've mentioned our guest today, but we're going to be having Dr. Winfred Cordwin on. And uh, Dr. Cordwin is, is a brilliant mind. He's an he's a incredibly godly man and uh, has just written a lot of books on apologetics, philosophy, uh, theology, etc. Just a brilliant mind. And um, I was actually introduced to him uh, through the works of Dr. Norm Geisler. But he wrote a book, uh, at least the copy I have is um, in 1997, and uh, kind of a, a funny story how I got this book. I was at the uh, York Baptist Association last Wednesday and was um, actually going through my ordination council, which is uh, basically where they put you on the barbecue for two hours and uh, don't turn you very much. But uh, it was a good time. Uh, and happy to say I did pass the ordination and uh, or the ordination council, I should say, uh, my church will vote in July, I think July 10th or 11th. And if all goes well, we will be having our uh, formal service uh, for my ordination uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention uh, in the first or second week of August. So stay tuned for details on that. But um, anyway, as I was at the as, as I was at the York Baptist Association, uh, a gentleman had brought off dropped off a bunch of books and uh, some clothes and stuff. As I'm going through the through the books, I see Dr. Cordwin's book uh, that I have wanted for a long time, but I just I hadn't bought yet, uh, which was which is called No Doubt About It: The Case for Christianity. And uh, it's just such an excellent, excellent, excellent book, and I couldn't believe I, I actually had the copy. Uh, it was sitting right there, and so I was able to pick it up. And uh, Dr. Cordwin is a friend of mine, and so I uh, had messaged him and wanted to do a show on this book. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But what we'll do, we'll, we'll hold off on the uh, discussion of uh, young earth versus old earth. We'll save that for another time. I may uh, just develop a whole talk on that because I think it's important. I want to see unity. I really hate seeing all the division between young earth and old earth creationists when I think uh, we have far more in common than what we don't have in common. Uh, we'll save that for, for another time, and we'll, we'll have a discussion about that. So what we'll do right now is we will take a break for about two minutes, and we will come back. I will have Dr. Cordwin on the line with us, and we are going to talk about his book, No Doubt About It. So stay with us. It's easy to fall into the trap of believing you're just another one in a billion. 
because you don't have the ability to make an impact in a significant way. You convince yourself that your voice isn't loud enough and your uniqueness doesn't matter. But you're wrong. Think about God's greater plan. Step back and stand in awe of the detailed care he took to create the universe. God made this universe specifically for you. He created you for a purpose, on purpose. There is someone you know who needs to hear this message. Someone who might be questioning if their life holds any real meaning. What if you were able to play a part in opening that person's mind and eyes to understand their significance as a part of God's greater plan? Reasons to Believe wants to partner with you to share the hope that we have in God as our loving creator and savior. If you will commit to spreading this hope, we will send you a copy of Why the Universe is the Way it Is to give to that person in your life who is searching for truth. This book offers compelling answers to some of life's biggest questions and presents a tangible opportunity to spark science-faith conversations with even the most skeptical friends. Let's break through barriers of insignificance and begin living life with purpose. Request your copy now of Why the Universe is the Way it Is to share with a friend. God's Word can sustain a lifetime of study. And the new Reformation Study Bible is carefully crafted to enrich your study of Scripture. When you register your new study Bible online, you'll instantly gain access to hundreds of dollars of discipleship resources from Ligonier Ministries. You'll own several teaching series, including Dust to Glory, Dr. R.C. Sproul's 57-message survey of the entire Bible. You'll receive six months of devotional content with a subscription to Table Talk Magazine. You'll have convenient access to select e-books on your digital devices. And you'll join others from around the world on Ligonier Connect. Your new Reformation Study Bible is a great foundation for growth. Register it today and unlock a lifetime of study. All right, folks, welcome back. And uh, we have with us for the next little while here our special guest, Dr. Wynne Cordwin. Dr. Cordwin is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy and Religion at Taylor University uh, and is the author of several books, including The Philosophy of Religion, uh, co-authored with Dr. Norman Geisler, which is an incredible book, Neighboring Faiths, and I believe we actually had him on to do a show on that book, and Islam, uh, Christian Introduction. We're going to be discussing Dr. Cordwin's book, No Doubt About It, The Case for Christianity. And uh, this book was actually written in 1997. Dr. Cordwin, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, Devin. Good to hear you. And oh, it's, it's an honor to be on your show. It is always good uh, to hear from you, my friend. Always good to hear from you. You're such a a wonderful big brain friend. So I like to like to hang around you and pick your brain. <laughs> well, okay, <laughs> thank you. Just uh, don't hit any of the really important parts, <laughs> like uh, where I eat. Part yeah. of the brain that controls uh, that, or something like that. Yeah, I'm but with you. Anyway. That's my favorite part as well. Doctor Cordwin, maybe um, take a take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about you. How did you, you know, did you grow up in a Christian home? How did you come to know <laughs> the Lord? And uh, how did you get into apologetics and philosophy? 
Well, uh, I did grow up in a Christian home in Germany. My parents were both Christians, and so I can't really say that there was ever a time when I did not know about Jesus. But when I was eight years old, I very consciously asked Jesus into my heart, as I would have put it at that point, realizing that even as a little boy, I had my sins and that Jesus had died so that my sins could be forgiven. So for all practical purposes, considering how old I am now, uh, I have been a Christian pretty much all of my life, and I'm very thankful to the Lord for having sustained me and having allowed me to play whatever little roles I've been able to. Uh, I always like to quote the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, I am what I am by the grace of God. How I got into apologetics was uh, first of all by reading, <clears throat> excuse me, the book by Paul Little, Know Why You Believe. And he made an extraordinary statement there on in the first chapter, which I then later on quoted in my book, I think. You don't have to kiss your brains goodbye in order to be a Christian. You can be a thinking, rational person, and you can be a Christian with an open mind because there is evidence for Christianity. Then there was right around the time when Francis Schaeffer's books came on the market. I was in college by then, and InterVarsity was really stressing uh, apologetics at the time, and I was the president of our chapter of InterVarsity at University of Maryland. And so after I graduated from Maryland, with a degree in zoology. I went on from there to Trinity in Deerfield, Illinois to get my MA in philosophy of religion and then to Rice University in Houston for my doctorate. But I don't think you were asking for my resume. (laughs) No, that's, that's, that's fine. How many, how many books have you written and when was, uh, when was the, or what was the first book you had wrote? The first book I wrote was Handmade to Theology. It came out in 1981 with Baker Books. And that's a book, I, it has a subtitle that's going to scare people away, and, and probably did, An Essay in Philosophical Prolegomena. Okay, wow. sorry about that. That was not <laughs> swearing. I don't know what it sounded like to you. <laughs> okay, what I meant by that term was that if you're a theologian, whether you know it or not, you use philosophical care, uh, categories. Uh, you know, if you talk about a human being, for example, you know, is the human being just a body? just a soul trapped in the, within the body, a combination of the two. Right. Now, we, we look at the biblical 
expressions about human beings, but you can't help your conceptual environment. And so you're going to have some kind of a set of philosophical categories which you use to uh, make whatever scripture teaches clear to you. Okay, it's not that the philosophical presuppositions actually replace the content of the biblical statements, but they do shape in which, shape the form in which we read the biblical statements and understand them. And that's what that first book was all about, how to understand, say, what a human person is, how to understand our connection as finite beings to an infinite God, how to understand Christ's incarnation and how to understand what God has done in our lives uh, and so forth from philosophical uh, presuppositions. That sounds like another one I'm going to have to put on my list to get then, (laughs) uh, providing they still sell it. Well, it's available now at... uh, Within stock. Wonderful. And yeah, they came. They my out of print titles, and so they have a number of them. And uh, you can probably find used copies all over the place. Let me let me ask you. Um, in the you know a few of the circles I've been in, and I've man, I've been in. I've seen a lot of different denominations. So I, I come from a Pentecostal background. I've been in part of Calvary Chapel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm Southern Baptist now. I find a lot of Christians are very skeptical of philosophy and even apologetics. Not as much, not as bad as philosophy. But have you run into that? And <laughs> what can we do? How do we correct that? I'm sorry about laughing. I wasn't laughing at you. Well, maybe yeah. I was, but you know, that's, <laughs> that's a question okay. that has an obvious answer. Uh, yeah, and actually it, it comes from both both ends of the spectrum. The one that you're probably thinking of is that people are scared that philosophy or apologetics or whatever is going to distort the gospel. And, mm-hmm. uh uh, let me let me tell you. Uh, you can decide how this fits. Okay, this is uh, sure. goes back a few years now, but not too far. About uh, five years ago or so, I was a speaker for the uh, LA College, not too far from here, and not Taylor University, but a different college, not too far from here, and they had their uh, beginning of the year conference for faculty on campus and I gave a talk at that uh, I guess it must have been close to 2000 because it was basically the future of apologism uh, of apologetics in the 21st century something like that and I gave my basic talk and uh, then uh, we had a panel later on. And uh, to my 
my surprise, one of the folks just uh, really opposed apologetics. Mm. And they were wanting to talk about how to strengthen the student's faith, but somehow answering the critical questions, at least to him and several of his colleagues, did not seem to matter. Okay. Wow. Uh, Now, go forward a few years, and we're talking about the daughter of one of our doctors. She went to that college, took one of their courses, and came out a total skeptic about Christianity. Wow. So, um, what was the question again? (laughs) Yeah, the need for Christians to study philosophy in apologetics. Study philosophy, history, whatever. Yeah. And uh, not, I mean, there is so much that can be done and that needs to be done. Yeah. But there is also such a a lag among evangelicals in apologetics these days. Yeah, you know, and I get... Oh, go ahead, Dr. Cordwin. I, I was going to say, that, that sounds really funny because, you know, everywhere you look, it's apologetics this, apologetics that, but it's just so superficial. And a lot of times, obviously I wouldn't say this over uh, blog radio or anything like that. I wouldn't say it publicly, but uh, apologetics <laughs> has almost become a type of entertainment for evangelical wow. Christians. And there's a, one of the many web pages uh, on apologetics, and someone had uh, made me a member of the group, and I thought, okay, I think I can live through this. And the <laughs> next day I opened it up, and there was somebody asking, probably very sincerely, what are the ten strongest arguments against Islam? And, no, I don't know if you can understand my reaction or what feel, what I felt when I saw that. I would say, okay, these are the ten strongest ways. One, Read the Quran. Two, read uh, some of the Hadith. Three, read oh, let's say read Neighboring Faith, <laughs> the two chapters yeah. on Islam. Uh, four, read several books or or and articles or whatever written by Muslims in defense of their faith. Wow. Where are we? Number five, read Norm Geisler's book on Islam. Study. There are there are Muslims. This is like there are Christian apologists. There are Muslim apologists, and uh, they study the Bible. 
they know the Bible well. Yeah, right. And if we just come along with a notebook of answers, that's that's going to run thin and eventually become a trickle. If if there is not a genuine commitment to learning and studying and uh, continuing to foster scholarship, not just in apologetics. Apologetics is not really a field of its own. It draws on Bible, philosophy, history, and so forth. Yeah. Continue the scholarship so that the next generation will have something left. Uh, That's good. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's exactly right. Yeah, it shows if we're willing to read their stuff, it kind of shows that we are, um, you know, looking to take, take it serious, that we're open-minded, uh, et cetera, as well. Yeah, most of all, we don't, uh, don't attack uh, strawmen. Uh, right. So with this book, uh, No Doubt About It, uh, The Case mm-hmm. of Christianity, why, why did you write this book? Well, actually, I have to confess, it goes back a whole lot further than, uh, what did you say, 1997? Yeah, which that's is when the, the paperback came out. Uh, okay. the, the original came out in 1993, and it was a hardback. And it was entitled Reasonable Faith. Excuse me for a second. I needed to get some liquid in my mouth. Now, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, the company formerly known as Broadman Press, then Broadman Holman, uh, the publishers, decided to start uh, producing textbooks and uh, my friend and former colleague Paul House uh, has served on the Southern Baptist Board and so forth and he knew about these things and he said to me when if you want to try you maybe they'll be interested in an apologetics text to publish it thought this was a really great idea because at my instigation actually Taylor University had and still has a general education requirement for an apologetics course all students need to take uh, two Bible surveys Old New Testament uh, a doctrines course and an apologetics course. And I'd been teaching that for a while by then already. And I had a problem with finding the appropriate textbook that my students could read. Now, I'm not going to mention any names, I don't think, but (laughs) uh, (laughs) the choice was either something that was too thin, such as uh, Paul Little's book, which is a great book, but not mm-hmm. worthy of being a 
a college uh, text. Right. Or there were several apologetics books on the market already, but they were all on a level beyond what my students were able to cope with simply because uh, they were not philosophy majors or apologetics majors. But the students I was teaching were uh, those two categories, philosophy and Bible and so forth, but also elementary ed and math and English and uh, creative writing and biology and physics and so forth. So I needed a book that would be uh, straightforward uh, and not waffle around with the philosophical questions, but at the same time make it accessible to Mm. those who are not experts. And I just didn't think that such a book was on the market. And so then when I had the opportunity to write that book, uh, I tried to make it as suitable as I could for a general audience, serious college students. Uh, And so I I tried to, well, I'm sure you will see that when you read the book, I'm philosophically rigorous. Yes, but sir. I'm also, also accessible. I hope I include vignettes and a lot of silly illustrations and so forth. Uh, there's. A, uh, I, I I like it uh, with um, so you know like you have the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, uh, which is a great book, and then mm-hmm. you have uh, Dr. Geisler's Christian Apologetics. Uh-huh. And I would say this book, no doubt about it, is kind of an in-between between I don't have enough faith and the Christian apologetics. So yeah, I don't have enough faith is a great intro, mm-hmm. uh, but it may not be deep enough, right, to, like, you, like you're saying, it's a college yeah. text. Uh, as to okay. where Geisler's – yeah, go right yeah. ahead. Yep. Yeah, I was going to tell you. I, I, I will let you know this. And it – as you know, we are members of the Norm Geisler Admiration Society. Yes, we are. <laughs> so there's you know, no question of that. But it was Norm's book that I had used before I wrote mine. Okay. And it's, yeah. it's a very, very good apologetics book. There's yeah. no question about it, but just that one little bit too far in the direction of needing a uh, more courses in apologetics uh, or in philosophy to understand it. Yeah. They, it's always, I mean, whether you're writing a book or teaching in a classroom, the temptation is always to not so much teach your students as to try to uh, answer arguments raised by those who are not students that our students may never hear about. Okay, I don't know if that sentence made any sense at all. Uh, In other words, I'm writing and speaking not two or four scholars, but two or four my students. Exactly, yeah, yeah. 
and that's what I mean. I think that's what that's what I like about the no doubt. When I, I my first apologetics course at SES, we used Dr. Geisler's Christian mm-hmm. Apologetics, and like you say, phenomenal book. Um, yes. But if you've never had or been exposed to it, I had a I had to buy the Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy uh, <laughs> and had it with me at all times just to understand it. So what I like about no doubt about it is it is I think. Um, deeper than the I don't have enough faith. I think it's it's uh, more robust than that, but it's not so robust a person can't understand it. I think it's just that perfect medium, you know? Well, thank you. That's that's what I was setting out to write. And, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a long time now. It's stayed in print, I think, basically, just because publishers don't need to take books out of print any longer because of computer storage. But, uh, you know, I still get uh, emails or something from someone that I didn't, that I've never heard about saying, thank you for what you wrote and no doubt about it. And, uh, and tell me of something, somehow, how the Lord has used the book in their lives. And I just get goosebumps. Amen. I, I remember we were when we first moved to the Carolinas. I was going to uh, it was an Assembly of God church, but they had a Christian uh, school with it, mm-hmm. and uh, they were actually using this book uh, for their high schoolers as a textbook for their mm-hmm. high schoolers. So I just I thought that was awesome. <laughs> Even then, <laughs> so. maybe yeah. we can. Look, look into it a little bit and get it, get into some of these chapters, um, if that's okay with you. That's fine. I still remember them. <laughs> well, take us through a little bit of uh, chapter one, Faith, Reason, and Doubt. Okay, here's the deal. And I'm repeating some of the things that I said in the book. Yeah. And this goes back to an earlier question you asked, too. Are people are worried about philosophy. People are scared of being doubters. Christians oftentimes just worry terribly that they may turn into doubters. And what a horrible, terrible thing it is to doubt. And to that, I would say, well, you know, it depends on what you mean by doubt. If it means that you've really already closed the question and thrown out Christianity, then you're not doubting anymore, then you're just uh, denying. But the way that I want to construe doubt is as a, a point in one's life when one asks, do I really believe all this stuff? I mean, people I... like me, who uh, grew up in a Christian home, are very likely to come to a point where they say, where they have to raise that question, I mean, is this really credible? Do I really believe that there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of God, and so forth. And uh, that's a productive kind of doubt. In fact, some people who write about uh, 
cognitive development say that uh, there should be a time in the development of a person's worldview and faith and so forth where they have to raise all of those questions in order to grow. Now, the thing is, uh, you know, we have such a negative uh, connotation with the word doubt. And if someone asks uh, serious questions, then they, uh, they're afraid that, uh, you know, as I used to say, they, uh, people start praying for them behind their backs and leave little notes under their doors in the dorm and uh, treat them like they're infected with some kind of virus. Uh, so I mentioned I had, had lots of students over the years come into my office and say, you know, Dr. Cordon, I really have a hard time believing and we'd go on talking, and then they would say, as far as I know, I'm the only person in my dorm or on my wing or whatever who feels this way. And in actual fact, he would be the, maybe the third person that day who had come to me saying that they felt they were the only person who had questions about Christianity. So... My wow. whole point is looking at uh, genuine, born-again Christians, still there comes a point where if you want to be honest with yourself at all, you have to ask, okay, this is what my parents taught me, this is what I've learned to repeat, and so forth, but is it my faith? And at that point, right. questions are going to come up. And that is one of the two main areas where apologetics can then step in and uh, provide an answer to an important question. Uh, right. The other side, of course, is when uh, apologetics becomes uh, a helper for evangelism. Apologetics is never an end in itself. And the whole the point is not to have the cleverest arguments or to right. win debates or whatever. The point is to uh, to help non Christians get over intellectual hurdles that might be keeping them from understanding the truth of the gospel and to help Christians see that their beliefs are not just grounded in Scripture, but that Scripture is also uh, supported by evidence outside of the Bible, by physical there's, uh, arguments in the sciences and uh, uh, philosophy, history, and so forth. Right. Yeah, you know, I'm in the I'm in the reformed camp. I'm a Calvinist, and so a lot of objections I will get is sometimes from uh, within my own camp. You know, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, why why do apologetics? Uh, the natural man cannot understand, and you know the those those typical objections. Uh, and so I find myself a lot having to defend doing why we you know why we need apologetics, and then other times um, just a lot of um, just kind of lay church people will think um, you know if you can give arguments, if you can give evidence for apologetics. Then you don't, or for God, then you don't need faith, and so they view apologetics almost as a negative thing because uh, it's taking away from faith. And if you take away from faith, you know, if you can prove God exists, what do you need faith for? What do you What do you say to some of those kind of objections? And I know you've ran into them as well. There, there are some confusions, Edward. Apologetics cannot possibly take the place of the faith that saves. I mean, faith, and here I'm going back again to Paul Little's book, uh, faith is not believing what you know isn't so. Faith is not just believing something because uh, you were born into it or whatever, but faith, that is saving faith, is trust in God. You place your exclusive trust in God, what God has done in Christ and in Scripture, and you wholeheartedly commit your entire eternal destiny to him. Now, that is not in any way uh, taken away from by uh, apologetics. If somebody hears the gospel but is so uh, overcome with being cold or hungry or sick, then uh, we understand that we need to help the person, first of all, to be uh, healthier, warmer, uh, not as hungry or whatever, so that they're in a state where they can actually listen to the gospel uh, with their minds and their hearts and then uh, make a decision concerning Christ. And that's really the role of apologetics. Uh, Somebody may really be interested in receiving Christ, but they have some intellectual questions. And at that point, then, apologetics steps in, and your reformed uh, uh, folks would probably do the same thing. They just would not call it apologetics, I guess, but... uh, you know, they may shy away from giving an answer to the question of, does God exist? But if you tell one of your uh, Reformed friends that, uh, say, there is no evidence that Jesus ever lived, I suspect they're going to counter with <laughs> the evidence that is there. Mm-hmm. and. If you're a mean person, you could then say, ha, you just did apologetics, caught you. 
But, uh, I mean, that's just how it goes. You don't have to have an apologetic system in order to do apologetics. There's nothing wrong with answering questions that people have. Yeah. I, I can't help but think back a number of years ago at a theological conference where someone was giving a paper doing a very strong reformed presuppositionalist perspective and he just said apologetics or evidentialist apologetics the kind that I would do or Norm Geisler or many other folks is sinful because it detaches the evidence from the uh, from the real message of the Bible, and uh, of course that uh, didn't go over too well with much of the audience. John Warwick Montgomery was there, and wow. I was there, and uh, the the exchange got uncomfortable. I, I have to to say, and then when it was over, I sought out the gentleman, hoping that we could patch up things, but uh, he just, okay, uh, snarled, I, I'm sorry, I can't think of a better word for it, snarled at me, wow. when have you ever seen an apologetics textbook from an evidentialist point of view that ends with telling people to receive Christ as their Savior. And I said, wow. yes, mine does. <laughs> wow. In It's chapter 13. It's not actually the last chapter, but you know, if you look at the chapter, it's all about needing to receive Christ and what it means to become a Christian. Yeah. From Christ to Christianity. And so what do I want to say? Uh, I don't recall now how I got off on that. But uh, I guess what I want to say is apologetic stands there ready to, or should stand there ready to point to Jesus Christ and the gospel. Apologetics is not an end in itself. And the point of apologetics is also not to come up with the best apologetic system. Uh, is you know, uh, presuppositionalist, evidentialist uh, are important distinctions. But if I write a book on apologetics, I'm going to defend my faith, and uh, the method which I use is uh, the one that I'm using, but I'm not going to waste a lot of space in the book itself defending the method. Against right. other Christian methods. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. 
And, um, you know, I appreciate that first chapter. I, I was one that had a lot of questions um, growing up. You know, my father uh, was a pastor. Uh, I was, I was, we were with the Assemblies of God at the time. And so mm-hmm. uh, at times they just don't have a whole lot of uh, emphasis on the life of the mind. And uh, I was very close to my grandfather, who was an atheist. And um, he loved science. I loved science. And so, you know, I had a lot of those questions about, you know, just science and faith, dinosaurs, evolution, these kind of things. Yeah. And, um, you know, my parents just really, and I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not angry at them or nothing, but they didn't know how to have those. They didn't know how to respond. Right. And yeah. uh, and I've seen a lot of students that they're basically, they're ashamed if they have questions. Um, yeah. I was watching um, uh, Expelled the other day, and they did an <laughs> interview with Will Will Provine, and as they're talking to Will Provine, he's saying, um, you know, I went to a, you know, he went to this particular church, and they had basically told him as a kid not to ask those questions, and he was just saying, you know, could you imagine how, what a terrible life that would be to not use your mind and not have questions, and, you know, you're not allowed to have any, and you could just tell that really affected him, thinking that, to become a Christian means to shut off your brain. And I see yeah. a lot of um, young people that struggle with that. Yeah, it's, you know, one of the first vignettes in the book is about a lady who was converting to Judaism, and I just happened to be there with my world religions class observing the uh, the Sabbath worship in that particular synagogue. Yeah, it's wow. the very first vignette. And uh, the lady was telling her story to the congregation as she received her new Jewish name and so forth. And uh, then... Uh, She had grown up in a Christian church. Actually, I'm reading now. As a child, she had made a profession of faith. When she became a teenager, she started to raise questions about what she believed. Is Christ really God? Does the Trinity make sense? What can we as modern people believe to be true? Her pastor told her that she should not ask such questions. She said that it is Mm. wrong to doubt and she should simply believe what she had been taught to believe. And now she was abandoning Christianity for good. And I've heard similar things said in regard to other other, uh, religions and so forth. Now, sometimes it's not really as black and white as they make it out to be. Mm-hmm. But there are also times when uh, when people really do get let down by yeah. pastors, elders, and so forth. People have real questions. You know, I tell people all the time, when you're doing evangelism, you know, we're telling people that Jesus is God, that the Bible's the Word of God, that those who don't accept Christ and repent 
will go to hell for eternity. These are big claims. And so mm-hmm. people should ask questions. It shows that they're they're thinking through some of these things, which would really actually lead to one of your other chapters that you could maybe talk about for a few minutes on a worldview. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit, what, what is a worldview? Who has a worldview? And maybe what are some of the components that make up a Ooh. worldview? Well, everybody has a worldview. And worldview... In fact, it goes back to what I said earlier about prolegomena, philosophical presuppositions to theology. We all have a way of putting the world together, of making sense of our experience of our lives by uh, having an overall picture and each part of our lives somehow fits into that picture. And uh, it's uh, a very tight, we can think maybe of it as a spiral, uh, a flat two-dimensional spiral where there's a center point and then the circles are wrapped around that that center point and it's very, very dense there say my uh, center point of my world view may be that I'm a human being created by God or something like that and then from that follow other beliefs that I have and those beliefs are tied in with further beliefs uh, such as uh, Okay, as a Christian, I need to be a godly father, a godly husband. I need to reflect Christ in my life. And then, you know, you go further out on that spiral and uh, you come to lesser uh, degrees of importance in the in your worldview. Uh, maybe... Uh, Ideas like how I see science, uh, what is my view on, or oh, in politics, say, or what are my views uh, on, uh, let me see if I can pick one other example about on that level. Okay, what are my views uh, on uh, medical ethics? Or something like that. Right. And you go further out and further, and then on the fringe there are beliefs like, uh, well, I hope we can have good weather. And those go back, if you will, to the center, because that belief is based on my earlier belief. I want to go to the swimming pool today. And that belief goes back to my belief I should take care of my body. And that belief eventually goes back to I am a creature made by God. So it's all tied together. Now, you change the the very center point, 
and you're going to come up with a different spiral or a different web of beliefs. And uh, right. so a Buddhist, presumably, if he or she has a basic understanding of Buddhist beliefs, uh, and oh, I'll skip that aside, and uh, uh, is going to have at the very heart of their philosophical perspective that nothing that we see is really real in the sense in which other people think it is real. And uh, so you go from there with with a spiral and your bottom line beliefs are going to be very different. So everybody has kind of a whole WHO, an entire uh, framework by which they live their lives and uh, what they believe, what they wish, and and so forth. All of those things come together in our uh, in those things that we call our worldviews. Now the the very superficial beliefs can be changed pretty easily. But the very core beliefs, like I'm a human person created by God, I mean, those kinds of beliefs uh, are very, very difficult to displace and uh, when that happens, then a person changes their entire world view. Now, a lot of people say that's not possible. That cannot change your world view because it's something that you grew up with. Like uh, Doug Guyvett says, it's like the skin you grow into. Oh. And, uh, and you just you just have it. Now, uh, Doug Ivett would agree with me, though, saying that that doesn't really make it unchangeable, though. It is possible to switch worldviews because I've seen it. Okay. Yeah. Whether it fits the philosophical categories or not, I've seen it. I've seen people... Leave, Christ, uh, leave some other worldview and become Christians. So, even though worldviews are very basic, we are not stuck in them forever. And right. uh, the next question then becomes. Uh, and here we go back to chapter one in a sense. Do I really believe, or I'm sorry, I was, no, do I really live according to what I claim to be my worldview? And we should never forget that that is also an important aspect of the idea of the worldview. Now, that takes us beyond apologetics, but. 
it's an important consideration when we talk about people having worldviews and changing them, because a lot of times I think whether it means converting into or out of Christianity, a lot of times I think people have already made a transition to a new worldview before they change their lives or God changes their lives before they make a proclamation of some sort that they now hold to a different worldview. That's good. Yeah, and I like how you say everyone has a worldview. Uh, and I think that's important. Um, you know, there's a rise, it seems, of, of, of atheism and agnosticism, uh, maybe at least in America. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's often put that uh, the Christians are the only one that has a burden of proof. The Christians are the only one that have beliefs. Christians are the ones that have to defend things. But if everybody mm-hmm. has a worldview, then everyone ha- kind of has to give an account. So like the atheist. He has a worldview of the origins of the universe and the origins of life and and that. And so in a, in a coherent worldview, uh, they would have to have some kind of an explanation for those things. Uh, would you agree with yeah. that? Yeah. Yes. You, uh, you hit the nail on the head. And, of course, uh, uh, you mentioned the movie Expelled just now. Mm-hmm a few minutes ago and I mentioned it in my blog and as a matter of fact I'm currently wearing my expelled t-shirt oh. <laughs> in my street jelly concert this evening later on yes and we want more anyway, information on that that, uh, uh, that scene towards the end where uh, Ben Stein talks with Help me out with the name, please, Steve. Richard Dawkins? Yeah, with Richard Dawkins. And Dawkins has no rational answer. That is just such a classic illustration of how worldviews function. Now, having said that, let me reiterate. Worldviews are at the very core of a person's belief. And it is very difficult, impossible, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that a non-Christian core will be changed to a Christian core. Wow. And so when we complain about some of the absurd things that contemporary atheists and agnostics are saying, we got to remember, they do not have a choice. It's the only game in town for them. Oh, that's the, good. The answer may be way off the wall in terms of rationality, evidence, or whatever, but what choice do they have? I mean, yeah. you can't you can't chastise someone for not believing in 
the resurrection of Jesus is at the very bottom or in the very center of all they believe is that nothing that we would call supernatural is possible. Right. And so they come up with some absurd substitute story. Uh, you know, someone else was crucified other than Jesus or the marvelous book that came out in the 60s, the Passover plot, which was all about how the uh, disciples gave Jesus a Romeo and Juliet-like uh, potion so that he would appear dead. But <laughs> then their, uh, their plans were destroyed, though, when the Roman soldier took his lance and killed Jesus for real. Anyway, you know, you, they come up with stories like that. Yeah. And uh, if the world view has anti-supernaturalism or anti-miracles or whatever at the very core, then uh, what what can they do? So, uh, you know, we have uh, Richard Carrier making noise with his idea that uh, something can come from nothing, which is utterly absurd. But how can you blame the poor guy if he wants to maintain his position as guru to thousands of young people eager to hear some nonsense that is going to liberate them from the alleged restrictions of Christianity. They they worship him as a god as he spews mindless garbage. I'm sorry, that's probably pretty strong for on the, the radio, but you know, that's what it amounts to. Yeah. And, uh, but what can he do? People will not like him anymore if he does not yeah. say those I, silly things. I think and, the thing that, that, that frustrates me about it, though, is, you know, if you want to claim those things and believe those things, okay, you know. But it's this idea that uh, those who don't believe those things are irrational, stupid, ignorant, uh, wicked. You know, I've got one clip where he's at the Atheist Reason Rally. I believe it was a Reason Rally. It was one of them things. But anyway, he's in front of the whole crowd, and he's encouraging atheists publicly mock them, scorn them. Make fun of them, shame them, embarrass them. Uh, that's you know that's the issue. It's like um, yeah, you can't. <laughs> yeah, it's what. Well, I just call what they say garbage. So I have no moral right now to question what yeah. they say. But yeah. it, I mean, you are absolutely right. I mean, when you talk with internet atheists on uh, uh, Facebook say it's always a uh, rabbit trail chase. Mm. You never you never get to fully discuss a point because they immediately pick on some tangent and uh, come back with surely you're too smart to believe 
such and such, which wasn't the point in question at all. <laughs> part of um, um, part of part of what makes up a worldview is uh, the existence of evil, right? And mm-hmm. uh, they've said that that's one of the biggest objections to the Christian faith. If God, why evil? Uh, but it's true that all worldviews have to account for what is evil, does evil exist, is there such a mm-hmm. thing as evil, etc. You have a chapter of this on your book as well. Can you go into that a little bit about uh, maybe how different worldviews see evil, such as pantheism, atheism? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me say, before answering the question more directly, that the other day I saw a book advertised on God, evil, and animal suffering, or something like that. And the first sentence of the summary was, at this point, it's probably clear that the suffering of animals presents the greatest obstacle to belief in God. And I just wanted to say, we won. If we're down to that, if it's no longer the Holocaust or cancer, but it's why animals suffer, then I think we've made a lot of headway. Anyways, yeah, there are different ways that uh, philosophically rigorous people can deal with or try to deal with the problem of evil. One is to deny that there is any evil, that it's just an illusion. But if we take a step back and look at the whole picture, we just see that evil is a uh, just one of the many aspects of the universe uh, that come together to make a great and harmonious whole, and we just need to talk ourselves out of accepting evil as real. Well, that would be, say, the case for pantheism and uh, other New Age type of beliefs. And uh, that doesn't answer anything, because uh, if it's an illusion, that's fine, but I still have the problem of why am I being deluded? To mm. why do I have the illusion of suffering? Because the illusion of suffering hurts just as much as suffering. Yes. Another way of <laughs> dealing with it would be to say that a God simply cannot do anything about evil in the world which would be what, uh, uh, say, process theologians would say, or panentheists, those who believe that God and the world are not identical but mutually interdependent, or uh, some people who say, like deists, who say that God cannot do anything about evil in the world right now because... Uh, it would be irrational for him to change the world that he created. And at that point, the uh, the question doesn't have anything to do with evil, but it has to do with uh, 
what thing are we calling God? I mean, something that just is unable to do something about something that it has created uh, surely cannot really be a God. Plus, uh, you know, you can say, look, you have the greater miracle, uh, the creation of the universe. God is capable of that. Then surely he is capable of turning water into wine or whatever the miracle in question may be. Well, and then uh, you know, some people might say, well, God is just plain evil. And that never plays out for very long. Uh, people like uh, Albert Camus or, uh, well, and others have tried to say that, but ultimately you just realize that uh, you're not doing anybody any any good by saying something like that. You're redefining the nature of God. And one possibility is, of course, to say, well, the evidence against the existence of God in the amount and type of evil that we see is so strong that rationally or evidentially it is simply inconsistent with the hypothesis that there is a God who can do anything about it. Well, you know, that's the real problem still. And it won't go away regardless of how uh, philosophers try to finesse it. And that's still where for ordinary people is the problem. If there really is a good and almighty God, how can he allow things like this, whatever, to occur? And I think... Everybody, Christians should feel that question just as much as non-Christians. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the tension we should live with. Yeah. Because God has created us to be sensitive to evil. Right. And if we don't feel a tension between the existence of evil and the existence of an all-powerful, all-good God, then... We've lost perspective in one direction or the other. Now, the response from my perspective as a Christian is well, if all things were equal, then, like, say, David Hume, I would have to say, uh, rationally, it really doesn't make sense to believe uh, that a miracle has occurred. It's more likely that I was mistaken in what I thought I saw or what other people said they had seen. It's more rational to go against the idea that a miracle happened. But there is evidence for the reality of God apart from uh, that particular argument about evil. And I'm not right. bringing in God as a, a deus ex machina, as a, a last resort, artificially saying, 
Well, of course, if God really is all-powerful and all-knowing, etc., then if he hasn't defeated evil yet, he will do so in the future. Okay, And that's going to be my answer, but it's not just on the basis of a hunch, but it's on the basis of having seen the evidence, Okay, seeing his hand in creation, uh, the mm-hmm. intelligent design that's evident in the universe, the fact that anything at all exists, and so on. And then in the Bible, to see how God has manifested himself in history, and that he did not spare his own son to atone for my sins. So I'm not coming to the conversation about miracles with a so-called neutral mind. Atheists, and uh, I'm particularly thinking of Richard Carrier now, they just have a, a, a hissy fit when I say something like this. But I can come to that discussion with a presupposition that there is a God and that uh, he to intervene in the world. And then when I look at an event, it's not that startles me, say, you know, it's not necessarily a miracle, but it is possible that the best explanation is that Yes, God did, in fact, intervene here. Mm. And uh, so those are some of the alternatives. Can I ask you a question, Dr. Cordwin? Um, you're, I know you're familiar with Dr. Frank Turek, and uh, his uh, Dr. Geisler and him did the I Don't Have Enough Faith. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Turek also came out with a new book called uh, Stealing from God. And I think he makes a good point in that when the atheist is making these complaints about evil, like Dawkins, you know, he goes, he has yeah. that quote in the God delusion about God being a monster and a bully mm-hmm. and things. Aren't, are they not borrowing from a theistic worldview? Well, absolutely. A standard of goodness? Yeah. I mean, there's no question about that. And the uh, presupposing, yeah. And the 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 best response is, of course, to say, uh, where do your standards of good and evil come from? Yeah. And uh, let me see if I can find this on my computer while we're talking. I mean, atheists sure. invoke uh, different. Uh, uh, sources for their standards, but it's it really doesn't sell. Uh, the sources really right. do not make sense. Uh, okay. Oops. Yeah. I have yeah, it here. It Sorry, it's going to make. Oh, go go ahead. Go ahead and okay, pour it all up. No. Here is a question, uh, a citation from Bertrand Russell from uh, A Free Man's Worship. And uh, it's kind of long, but 
Okay. He says, first of all, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. All these things are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Okay, so that's part one, that uh, atheism is a given among uh, intelligent people. Then we get to the next part. Uh, Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. The firm foundation of unyielding despair. That's his basis. Right. And then, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his ways, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man, condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gate of darkness, it remains only to cherish, ere yet the blow fall, the lofty thoughts that ennoble his little day. Disdaining the coward terrors of the slave of fate to worship at the shrine that his own hands have built, undismayed by the empire of chance, to preserve a mind free from the wanton tyranny that rules his outward life, proudly defiant of the irresistible forces that tolerate for a moment his knowledge and his condemnation to sustain alone a weary but unyielding atlas, the world that his own ideals have fashioned despite the trampling march of unconscious power. Wow. (laughs) Bertrand Russell was an honest atheist. Wow. He realized that given his understanding of the nature of the world, he was stuck without hope, without basis for values, without meaning. Man. And that's what you have. Yeah, ultimately that's what you have. That's that's one of the main atheists of the late 19th and most most of the first half or beyond that the 20th century. Yeah. Do you remember that that portion in Expelled with uh, Dr. Will Provine when he's saying I think it was in a debate he did with Philip Johnson where he's saying you know, basically, there's no, there's no free will, there's no evil, there's mm-hmm. no good, there's no bad. You know, it's 
man, it's just a what a what a <laughs> hopeless yeah. world view. It's uh, and that's why you know, we we have a message of hope, and that's what uh, we really need to show the world. Uh, if they're honest, they are they see themselves as condemned already. Yeah. And uh guilty. Yeah. I mean it comes out yeah. in what Russell wrote and uh, it comes out in any number of serious writers in the pre Dawkins era. The only way that they can have Hope and salvation is by recognizing that they are going down a dark path into nowhere. And some folks like Bertrand Russell were willing to do that. Many of them come up with their own kind of definition of God which suits just what they would like to believe. And uh, it's like Einstein's God that my next blog entry is going to be about. Ooh. But it's... uh, That will be good. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, talk to us uh, uh, maybe a few minutes. You wrote also a chapter on the existence of God. A lot of mm-hmm. Christians today uh, don't know that there are arguments for God's existence. You know, when I speak at churches frequently, a lot of people mm-hmm. are surprised. You know, when I talk to high schoolers, etc., that there are arguments one can give for God's existence. What are some of maybe yeah. the traditional ones given? Uh, well, the one that I focus on is the cosmological argument, and I'll say that uh, for a second, but uh, there is a straightforward philosophical argument called the ontological one, that if you really come to terms with what it means that there is a God, then you understand that the concept of a God can only be real if God really exists. Because if he didn't exist, he would not be a supreme being, but we think of God as a supreme being, so he could not lack the attribute of existence, so he must exist. Uh, Do you like that argument? uh, I think it contains too many ambiguities in the end. But I think uh, it's too often misrepresented as God exists because I can think of him. Uh, yeah. Now, there is such an argument. Rene Descartes tried to defend it, but most people would say that doesn't have very much force. And so Descartes went with the ontological argument. What but, about planting his planting his work on it? Well, that's you know you're getting into a lot of detail there uh, with his. I don't, at the very bottom, one of the basic presuppositions that Elvin Planning uh, has is the very thing 
that has been questioned for centuries about the argument. He treats existence as a property. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, you know, the way that he writes out his argument is so wonderful in terms of modal logic and so forth, but uh, he he doesn't cover it up. And uh, right. when I asked him about it, he said something like, why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but that's uh, that's part of what uh, Dr. Planning holds. So his argument is very good, but it still makes that kind of presupposition. So I don't want to use an argument where I have to take too many steps back right. into disputed territory. And of course, sure. a well-known argument, a very popular one, is to uh, look at all of the uh, cohesion and uh, harmony and beauty in the world and say that uh, there must have been a creator or there must have been an intelligent person who designed the world. More of a teleological argument. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And uh, then there's the moral argument uh, along the line that we just talked about that uh, without God, there is no genuine basis for morality. I like uh, the cosmological argument best, and uh, among those, the one based on what uh, we can call existential causality, uh, which says this much. Since something exists, this thing must be either something that has always existed and is therefore an infinite being in all of its dimensions, or it's something that was caused by another. But you cannot have an infinite chain of caused causes. So there must be a source for all of the causes that cause other things. And that source has to be outside of the chain of causes or uh, nothing would exist. So there must be a necessary being. Or to put it in uh, easier language, no God, no world. Right. It's more reasonable to believe that there is a God who made the world, then that the world simply exists without a cause. Because the world is just the kind of thing that can't exist by itself. Now, that's, uh, is that Thomas's third way, or no? Yeah, well, yeah. His first, second, okay. third really all come together. I mean, those are actually just different ways of expressing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, I mean, what, what, oh, go ahead. 
uh, it's a very important point that has been misunderstood for centuries. And uh, that is that uh, okay, Aquinas has three arguments that are very similar. One uh, based on necessity and contingency, one based on causality, and one based on motion. And when we hear the word motion, we think of the word of the the way it is understood, uh, like a ball rolling, something changing locations. But for Aristotle and uh, Aquinas, Motion is actually, the, the word that's used there actually covers any change. Mm-hmm. So in order to have change, you need to have something that causes the change. And when you understand it like that, that's no different from Newton's principle that uh, given ideal situations, a moving object will stay in motion unless something intervenes. And so the uh, Aquinas argument actually says the same thing, that uh, there could be no change unless some change or some cause would be there to have brought about the change. And uh, you look around you, and we're all changeable things. Cannot give what you don't have. Uh, if I have a cup of coffee in my hand, there must be some place that I got the coffee. Okay, now it could be that my wife had a cup of coffee. No, that's not possible. She hates coffee. That my <laughs> older son had a cup of coffee, and he poured his into mine. That's not really possible either. He would never give up his coffee, but let's just go with that. <laughs> and uh, So maybe he got his coffee from his wife, and that's possible. She's a very nice person. And she may have gotten her coffee from someone else. Sooner or later, you can slosh all the coffee around, but unless you have a source for the coffee, that uh, first of all poured the first cup of coffee and did not receive its coffee from the same chain, then there could be no coffee at all. Or you can think in terms of uh, a chain hanging from a ceiling. Okay, the lowermost link, link one, hangs from link two, hangs from link three, and so forth. It doesn't matter how long the chain is or how high up you go, unless... There is a hook in the ceiling which supports the chain without being supported by it. The chain is not going to hang down. So that's uh, the the cosmological argument that I think personally works the best. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's uh, that's a great argument. Can you take uh, two minutes and maybe talk a little bit about Leibniz's uh, argument as we come to a close? I know that's another popular one. Yeah. Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah, very quickly. Uh, Leibniz's argument uh, is both good and has a serious flaw. The good part is that he understands that uh, the world could not exist by itself apart from God. The problem with Leibniz's argument is simply that he is too vague about that, and he says there must be a sufficient reason or an explanation for the existence of God. In other words, he doesn't specify that the existence of the world has to be caused or how a cause would work. And so... uh, the objection to his argument from uh, atheists is that uh, a, an explanation, a sufficient reason, can be given for each part of the world, and maybe even the world as a whole, without having to resort to a god. I might just mention that I was going to do my MA thesis under Norm Geisler, defending that critique of the cosmological argument. And uh, Dr. Geisler was very kind and said, well, on the ground that you're establishing this, you're right. But that's not the argument that we really support. And then he got me into the argument from existential causality, which I then wrote my thesis about, defending the arguments that I had intended to shoot down in my thesis. Wonderful. That's that's you're just um, you're a wealth of knowledge. Um, as we wrap up, maybe tell us where can we find your blog at? A blog. And, uh, tell us. Yeah, go ahead blog is at wincordwin all one word w-i-n-c-o-r-d-u-a-n dot brave journal again one word brave as in courageous journal as in diary brave journal dot com great and uh, you're going to be doing some performing tonight is that yeah. correct and where can we where can we find you this is a wonderful outlet for me to do this it's on the internet and uh, the site is called streetjelly.com okay you have all the other stuff http www.streetjelly mm. one word street as in road, and jelly as in what you put on your toast. The idea is that when you go out and play on the street for tips, your knees turn to jelly. (laughs) So it's streetjelly.com, and uh, you don't have to register or sign up or pay for anything to listen to it. When you first open up the site, you'll see uh, 
the names of the artists and their pictures and you'll see who is currently performing and you can click on them and watch their show and listen to them. If you uh, register, you can participate in the Gushen window that's right next to the performer's window. And uh, if you want to uh, give the performer some tips, as in <laughs> money, then you can buy tokens, but you have to sign up then. You can buy tokens and then give the performer some tokens, which then turn into cash at the end of the month. So, yeah, yeah. I'll be on starting at we'll nine. Nine o'clock. At nine o'clock Eastern Daylight Time, yeah. And it'll be uh, some secular songs, some uh, Christian songs, whatever comes to my mind at the time. <laughs> Dr. Cordwin, I appreciate you being with us and look forward to having you again uh, in the future. You've been on before, and we shouldn't wait so long to have you back on again. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. It's It's been fun chatting with you. Say hi to Melissa. I will do that. Any uh are you gonna be down in North Carolina anytime soon or Charlotte or it's not planned at the moment. Okay. So yeah, I don't yeah. At well if you, if you guys ever come down this way, let us know. You got a place to stay with us for sure. Mm-hmm. Are we still on the air? Yes, yep, I'm getting ready to to, oh, okay. to close it now. <laughs> But uh, I I do appreciate you so much. You you're well, thank been you. a real inspiration to me. It's been great. So. You have a good evening too. All right, Doctor Cordwin. Join us again next uh, week, folks. Uh, in August, we're going to be doing uh, a special month looking at uh, the creation evolution issue, and we plan on getting some guys. Uh, you know, last year we spent August. Uh, we had Stephen Meyer on. We had uh, some guys from Reasons to Believe and uh, Creation Ministries. So keep in tune. We'll be letting you guys know uh, what kind of shows we got coming up. And, uh, again, thanks for joining us, and see you next time. God bless.